the Blobcast, sponsored by PHS. My name is Kath and I started my period the day after my 10th birthday. My name's Heidi and I first got my period at 15 years old. My name is Emma, I am 10 and a half years old and I started my period five months ago. Hello, My name is Angharad and I started my period when I was 12 years old. My name is Rebecca and I started my period when I was 11 years old. My name is Leah and I had my first period when I was 10 and a half. Hello and welcome to The Blobcast. Here at The Blobcast, we want to free the period. What does that mean? It means periods shouldn't cost us money. How do we even begin to achieve this? We think open conversations about periods are the start. Shame and stigma around bleeding and menstruation has ruled for too long. My name is Casey Robinson. I'm a period educator, and that means I go into schools and workplaces to talk about all things periods. I'm also a diversity and inclusion educator. In this limited series of the Blobcast, we'll be talking to some of my favorite activists, commentators, and charities that work in this area. The one thing we all share is a passion for periods, a passion for open conversations. Many of you will have heard the term period poverty. We're not going to use that phrase here because research shows that people in that situation feel uncomfortable with it. We're going to use the phrase period equality, which is more than affordability. It's about awareness, understanding, and again, back to those open conversations. Today's episode is a pain. And many of us will have experienced that with our periods. We want to find out what pain, if any, is normal. What kind of pain are we experiencing? What can be done about it? And why do periods even cause us pain in the first place? Helping answer some of those questions is Dr. Annabelle Soimimo from Reproductive Justice, formerly Decolonizing Contraception. She works at a gynae outpatients in community sexual and reproductive health and at a menopause clinic. She is also studying for a PhD in how black British women access contraception and abortion. Wow, what a CV. We've also got the one and only Shante Joseph. She is the author of British Black Power, a broadcaster. She presents The Guardian's pop culture podcast, a content creator and a recent sufferer of period pain. Welcome to The Blobcast. PHS, we do more. We're here to talk about pain, right? Pain and periods, which for me is something that I guess personally I don't relate that much to. But I say that because my understanding of like pain and periods has developed over time. So like the first time you ever heard about having a period, the idea was like it was going to be painful and it was going to be really crap and you're going to have the worst time. So I think in some ways my like mind was setting itself up for it. But the older I've got, the more I've learned about periods, the more I talk about periods. Actually, like I realise I'm probably a lot lower down that spectrum that I thought I was in terms of experiencing pain, having friends that are living with endometriosis and PCOS, like people's going through some things that I maybe thought I was going through, but I'm not. So I want to just come with a couple of facts and then I don't know if you feel free to like comment on them and we can reflect on we feel about the facts. One of the things that came out fairly recently was a professor from Reproductive Health at University College London revealed in 2018 that research shows that pain can be as bad as having a heart attack. 
Annabelle, what does that speak to you? Does that feel like something that you feel is a good thing to share with people? Is that something that's really giving voice to like a lot of people's experiences? So I think it's really important that we have more data around menstrual pain, right? And yeah. that kind of research is important for illustrating the severity that it can potentially be for some people. And yeah. historically, it's been downplayed. So yeah. I do think that data is really important. I think there was more research within the last year or two. I can't cite the person, but essentially said that moderate period pains is the equivalent of the early phases of labour. Right. Right. And people recognise that childbirth is difficult. Right. So who knew? You know, who knew, um, right? and it gets downplayed. So you're supposed to go to work, do your exams, just carry on like nothing's happened to you. And as somebody that does experience bad menstrual pains, you know, I've had to go home from work. Um, even recently, I think that this information is important for people that don't experience period pain yeah. to have some comprehension because you're often gaslit, almost like you should be able to power through it, you're not resilient enough, and we need to understand that we are resilient. <laughs> We're not just making it up. Yeah. We are actually you know, in pain. So I do think these stats, these figures are really, really important. Ultimately, it motivates people to do more research, right? When they hear those data, we want to understand why, we want to understand how we can improve it. Because pain is relative and we all have different pain thresholds, what is painful to some people might not be painful to others. And yeah. that's something that's important to understand. So some people like, oh, you shouldn't tell people that, whereas in their minds, it's going to make them amplify it and then yeah, suddenly heard this there a lot. more yeah. pain, right? Although that might be true for some people, I think it really does actually help, as I said, the healing process for other people to understand that actually their pain is very real. Yeah. And what is happening to them is very, very important. I don't know if it's like a myth, but like that key idea that's like people, women especially, are so like incapacitated during their period, they're just useless, like they can't handle it. But then also on the flip side just get on with it, right? Like the way that those two things like somehow sit together despite being complete opposing things. So I think, yeah, your point around like knowing more is also really helpful to like dismiss loads of those really like harmful and gaslighty type myths. So And just um, to bring in some personal context as well as like my medical context, I, as I mentioned, have really bad menstrual pains and I didn't have any kind of preparation around what my period would kind of be like from a pain perspective. And I guess your mum or whoever raises you doesn't necessarily know because each person's an individual, right? Yeah. My period started quite late, so maybe about 14. And for ages, like I hear from a lot of my patients, I thought the fact that I had loose bowels and, um, you know, doubled over was actually just everybody's experience. Yeah. It took me until kind of my early 20s to understand that that wasn't what everybody was experiencing when it came to the first few days of their period. So, yeah, we do need to prepare people for the spectrum because most of us just wandering around for ages thinking this is what's up for everyone. Yeah. And I remember taking my GCSEs on one of those days and I think back and I was like, no, should definitely have been able to have some help around that, you know, at that time. Definitely. Shante? Do you want to lean in? Anything that's coming up? Yeah, I think it's like a really interesting one because when I think a lot about period adverts and campaigns, it's always like, I can, you know, be an Olympic athlete and still, you know, be on my period because I have like Tampax or always or whatever. And I really like sometimes hate those narratives because I think they also do feed into this idea that like, you know, don't let your like period ever stop you from doing anything. But actually it's like, 
there's a real conversation to be had about pain and people who can't do things. And I definitely think it does promote that message that like people who feel completely like unable to do their daily tasks because of their period are kind of choosing to do so. Because look at this, you know, person skiing down a, a mountain slope as part of the Winter Olympics and they're on their period as well. And I think, yeah, that narrative doesn't just exist, like I guess amongst us and in the workplace, it's what's kind of presented in the media, particularly amongst like different like period brands. So I 100% like agree that sometimes this information is extremely useful because it does give context and it does make you feel like less bad about you know if you do have a period and you're like you can't do anything I think growing up from my own personal experiences I've never really had really bad periods and so like maybe I have one or two days that are bad but I can still kind of go about my day and and function um but I've never really felt like this has stopped me from kind of doing things or it's like been unbearable or it's like something that I've been like I'm really worried about this so I think yeah I'm kind of in the same boat as you and that like the pain thing hasn't really been like too much of like a huge issue um I think it's a bit different now I think I was saying before that I got like the copper coil like the 10-year one and that's definitely changed everything about my period from like how regular it is to how long it is to the pain and all that kind of stuff so I'm now kind of experiencing a new period that is like slightly I wouldn't even say painful but just more kind of uncomfortable and and much longer than usual and so now I'm having to think so much about like my routine and my life and and what these days mean for me and what I can and can't do and stuff like that so that's changed a lot for me as well because I think yeah pain is is one thing but then there's a level of like discomfort and like how you dress and do you know what I mean like I think it's there's so much more that happens around it that you have to maneuver your life around and obviously pain is like one element of all of that. At the Blobcast, we're all about open conversations. We interviewed people who menstruate to hear about their experiences of pain. Here's what they had to say. It's kind of like, it's like being punched in the stomach. Just had this contraction pain come on deep into my womb, it felt like, where somebody had two hands gripping my uterus and just twisting it as tight as possible. It's like a dead pain. Do you know if you got punched in the arm... And you had a dead arm, but it's like that constantly, but in the bottom of your stomach. To the point where I can't stand up straight, I have to, like, be hunched over. Some months I am absolutely debilitated. Uh, My legs hurt down to my knees. My back is in, like, agony, like I've slipped a disc. And my womb feels like it's full of concrete, solid and dragging down. And that's without the cramps when you're passing clots. For me, I'd say my period pain is worse than the pain I experienced when I was giving birth. The, the contractions have got nothing on uh, on my period pain. Sometimes my cramps just last like two minutes and they'll go, but sometimes they'll last like 10, 15, and it's just like the worst. Like, I've been in shops before where I'm like, give me a minute, I need to sit down for a second, like I can't, I can't move. Birthday is sort of the only bearable day of the period. And then the second, third, and sometimes even fourth day is lots of pain, really tired, sort of flawed. I had to walk home from school and I had to stop walking because I physically couldn't move. I've sort of always gone super, super plus with the tampons, bled through many a clothing and ruined many a bed sheet. It's like a hot, a burning heavy feeling, like a cannonball or a bowling ball or something lodged in our pelvis. It's like a weight. It's not even once a month, really, is it? Because I swear it's like two weeks out of every month I have the preemptive pain, the period pain, and then you have some sweet relief before it all starts over again. The Blobcast. Free the period.
people I know and friends of mine who said they are actually experiencing really bad pain, but have also been like, oh, it's not that bad because they're so used to it, haven't talked to anyone else about it, assume that's just the norm. So like really understanding kind of that spectrum and recognising that, are we talking about discomfort and like irritability and a bit of an annoyance around that's happening or like actually a proper health condition and health concern? So on that, yeah, on that, <laughs> top, yeah, yes, on doctor, th- take it away. <laughs> so when we talk about pain, um, one of the ways I suppose of knowing whether pain is a medical issue or something needs to be done about it is exactly the things um, that Shante was just mentioning, right? That if your life is changing yep. around the fact that you have discomfort, it's now becoming pain, right? So you have to decide that you're not going to do things today. Can you go into work and function the same that you did before when you didn't have this feeling, this pain, right? If you can't, then obviously then you need some help with that and that is not quite normal because you're having to restructure your life and you can't do the things that you would usually do. And this is not saying, obviously, you know, some people might say some forms of exercise they can't do on their period because it's not practical because they're bleeding. That obviously is a practical thing. Whereas if you are saying, I actually can't concentrate during my job or I can't lecture, I can't, um, you know, I can't make deliveries, I'm rolling around, then obviously that is a medical problem and it shouldn't be so severe that it's dominating your life. Right. I think sometimes we're told to minimise those things and that people's thresholds are different, right? So some people can still function even though they have these feelings and other people can't. And it's okay to say that, you know, (laughs) my pain threshold's not that good. Like what is a dull ache for some people is actually really incapacitating for me. Yeah. Um, And I think that's where we need to start being a bit more fair. Yeah. Compassionate. Yeah. So it says here around 80 to 90% of people suffer period pain at some point in their lives. In 5 to 10% of women, the pain is severe enough to disrupt their lives, right? So this is data from various sources, with most of these women complaining that period pain starts. I don't like that word complaining, by the way. Let's just say mentioning. That feels really gendered (laughs) and Mm -hmm. gross. Most of these women saying that period pain starts in their teens or early 20s. So the idea that we'll all maybe at some point experience that like end a bit of like spectrum of pain but then sort of a smaller percentage being around like really something that interrupts their lives and that sticks out for me particularly like in the workshops with young people and particularly young people like understanding their periods for the first time whether like they've just started or they're about to start or some of their friends whatever there's this like anxiety that young people have where they want you to tell them that like your period's exactly going to be like this right they're sometimes a little bit blown away by the idea that their period can be a bit different so I'll always like share stories and well when I was 22 it was kind of like this like it just opens up into a new bit like if you start talking about products that then leads to another conversation about mm. xyz then leads to about pain then leads to this like there is really so much to discuss and I think like, in those talking to young people like as soon as you tell them one thing they're like oh and I've got a million questions mm. about a hundred other things too and like you say we're not really encouraged anywhere just to have the conversation because it's important and like enjoyable to have right which brings me to another point so PHS's period equality research found that 80 2% of learners who missed school because of their period did so as a result of period cramps. But also the idea is like 82% of young people are actually off 
school because of those period cramps. It's important as well because I feel like online, particularly like TikTok, has become like such a good place to get this information. Like you have people who will just like have like model like vaginas and be like, this is what happens when you do it. And that stuff is so good and so helpful. But then on the other end of the spectrum, there's so much like misinformation as well. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of dangers. Like I don't know if you'll have opinions on this as well. Like a lot of people being like, you know, try this supplement and this supplement and this supplement. And I have a friend who will buy every single supplement someone on TikTok told her to buy her for like, you know, less painful periods. And she will like take them all and da 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 da. And I'm like, gosh, like I do wonder if like the fact that this is so accessible and just like anyone can just say anything and put it out there. Like, and I think that is the problem. And particularly when it comes to pain. And although this isn't particularly periods, I remember before I got my coil. I would, you know, just looking on TikTok to find people's experiences and it was just like, this is the most painful thing in my life and da-da-da. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, it and, <laughs> and so sometimes you get more anxiety by using, like, online platforms to educate you and inform you about this stuff because a lot of the time it's people sharing their worst ever experiences and maybe I'm guilty of it as well with being like, oh, my moon cup got stuck inside me, I had to remove it and those people being so scared when I went to get my coil done and it was just like, fine. And, like, people will say the same thing about smear tests. Oh, my God, it was the worst, da-da-da-da-da but then there's actually like for me anyway like the experience was okay and then there's so much that you can ask for you can put in place to help make the experience more comfortable for you but a lot of people don't even know about that and people's TikToks and their Instagrams and their stories aren't talking about ways to make it better it was just like this was the worst thing that ever happened to me and so it's sometimes so difficult having conversations about periods or period pains when you're living in an an era where like everybody comes online to share their most outrageous stories and then I think it then makes people people feel more anxious than they need to be. Yeah, the drama around it. And that, and if that's the thing is, right, is that I suppose on the side of everything that Instagram, TikTok is good for that because we are seeing so many more people talk about it, but we are also only seeing the dramatic stories, the ones that get the most likes, the ones that get the most hits. And so when we're talking about that education piece, obviously young people today, maybe compared to us, could go and educate themselves, but there's literally a bombardment of information and you don't know, like who to trust, what's right, what's not. Like, am I just like a sucker for capitalism here and I'm just buying everything because mm-hmm. it's in a nice packet and it looks all aesthetically pleasing. Okay, I want to talk about like diagnosis and the ways in which a lot of the bigger issues with periods like endometriosis, like PCOS, the idea that, well, say the idea, the average amount of time they say is seven and a half years to get an endometriosis diagnosis, which feels like a massive amount of time. It is. Is there an explanation as to why it's that long? Is it just, is it a, like a whole ton of factors that actually I can't give you a short answer and I need an hour to explain this? I mean, it's a whole ton of factors, some of which we've described, but I think they can be summarised pretty succinctly. Um, One of them we've talked a lot about, it's about how society has told us to feel about our pain. So for a very long period of time, no pun intended, people just power through, right? They're like, this pain that I have, I think it's a bit normal. Wait, oh no, it's not normal. I spoke to somebody, oh, it's not normal. So that takes them some time. There's a lot of barriers, particularly in the healthcare system we have at the moment. People are trying to get appointments, they're trying to speak to their GP the GP doesn't have time they're overwhelmed then they see a different GP the process starts again that might take a couple of years and I say this to the medical professional that also you know has to see my own doctor and I've experienced some of these things I think people forget some of us are we are all in it together right yeah we, we are experiencing the same problems that the public are experiencing so 
there's that. And then there's the process of actually diagnosing endometriosis. So um, with endometriosis, the condition is essentially growth of bits of the womb lining outside the womb, and that bleeds and causes pain in a cyclical fashion, and you can't see that on an ultrasound scan. So you can sometimes see similar changes, especially if you have it in the ovaries, but it's not clear. So kind of the first steps of investigation, people might wait a few months for the ultrasound scan. It's not conclusive. We can give you hormones to see if it helps initially. But to definitively see it, you then have to have what we call is a camera test in the stomach, which is an operation done under general anaesthetic, a laparoscopy. So you then have the wait time for a laparoscopy. A lot of people don't want to have a procedure where they're put to sleep. It's a bit daunting. Also, there's a wait for that. And then that's even a snapshot diagnosis. So somebody goes in with a camera and they will have a thorough look around, but Spots of endometriosis might be really small. Very occasionally, those might not be seen, especially it's very early endometriosis. And we know that the staging of endometriosis doesn't necessarily correlate to how much how significant your pain is. Okay. So sometimes stage one or two, where there's dots of endometriosis in the pelvis, people might have really significant amounts of pain from that. The same as somebody that has, you know, stage four where the endometriosis is everywhere, there's a lot of scarring. So all mm. of these things make it quite a difficult thing to diagnose in that we don't have an easy test to conclusively say you have endometriosis. Polycystic ovaries syndrome, PCOS, is usually a triad of things. So you have cysts on the ovaries. The ovaries are a bit bulky because you have um, large cysts on them. That can give you pelvic pain, cyclical pains. Some people don't have that. They just have irregular period cycles. You can get hair growth from hormone imbalance, increased testosterone, so you have testosterone levels. So it's all of these symptoms. You need kind of two or three of the symptoms to get a diagnosis of polycystic ovarian syndrome. A lot of people might struggle to get the blood test, again, because of seeing health professionals, get the ultrasound scan. So people might struggle to get all the information they need to conclusively say that's what's going on with you, essentially. Or sometimes with polycystic ovarian syndrome, because you can also struggle with weight gain, yeah. and as I said, hair growth, sometimes there's a lot of prejudice that if people don't have what is considered a typical PCOS appearance, people are like, well, you don't have that because you don't fit the... The mould. The mould <laughs> of okay. PCOS, right? So these are all some of the barriers that people may experience in terms of getting those particular diagnoses. So it's it's multifactorial, but um, there are some things that clearly need to change, and a lot of them are system issues around reproductive health where it's just so much harder to get people to take reproductive health problems seriously we are sponsored by phs phs supplies schools with period products which are free for any and all learners who need them whenever they need them no questions asked talking about pain bias right cheeky plug my no never divided. a cheeky plug important um, 
So there is a chapter in here called We Feel Pain, and it's very much talking about the racial history and race science and pain. So how we have perceived black bodies, indigenous bodies, and I call them bodies because historically that's how, you know, racial capitalism has seen us just as, you know, labour and not really thinking about our health and needing healthcare and how that sometimes is fed into the health system that we have and how health professionals can treat people. And it's not just a racial issue, it's also a class issue in terms of sometimes if you speak a certain way or people think you're more likely to complain or have some social standing mm-hmm. if you don't get the service that you want or require and this is not just health this is in any situation you're more likely to get a better standard of care or you know service delivery because people think that if they don't give you care that's up to standard that it will end badly for them So these are some of the things that make it more difficult for people to have kind of their pain or poor health conditions taken seriously. You know, there's been a lot more conversations around black women in childbirth recently because we've also had starting statistics in that regard Mm -hmm. about black women being five times and then four times more likely dying childbirth and some great organisations like five times more doing work specifically around that issue. But some of the things that have been raised around that is that when we say we're in pain, particularly around labour and things like that, the responsiveness isn't really there. And also we have a level of maybe internalised racism and also internalised classism for some people where they feel like if they speak up and say that I am in pain or I need this thing, then they're going to be seen as angry or fitting that mould of, you know, a shouty black woman or a shouty working class person. So then they don't say even though that they actually think that they need the help as well. So it's multifaceted. It's also health professionals not enabling people. It's also people regulating themselves to their detriment because of all these structures around them that make them feel silenced. And often this can lead in a really bad place. So just to give you some cases or some kind of statistics around this, there was some research done in the US, which was retrospective. So they looked at about a million cases of children that had gone into hospitals for appendicitis and looked at the pain relief that they were receiving and looked um, at it racially. And they found that black and Hispanic, and I know Hispanic is often treated as a race, but we can unpack that. (laughs) We can (laughs) unpack that on another episode on another podcast. But But, um, we're not as likely to be receiving the strongest type of pain relief, so like opioids like morphine for appendicitis, you know. And there's many reasons why that might be, as I mentioned, being offered it, feeling like they can ask for it. But, you know, these things are quite striking. And I I would say that I've had similar experiences because... I look quite young, hopefully. (laughs) I'm in my early 30s now. But often, you know, I've been questioned when I've been going to medical care about, you know, whether I actually need certain things or how I've come to such conclusions. And um, because people assume that I'm young and I'm not, hey, I'm a doctor, I'm in a I just mm. go like everybody else, right? These are ongoing issues. There's been a long history in campaigns of this country because often people say, oh, that's the US, different system. The UK is different and it's it's difficult because people try to gaslight you mm. yeah. <laughs> um, when it comes to pain because it's not visible, right? Yeah. So people will always say, it's not that bad. You know, you look otherwise quite well. She was playing on her phone. Pain can present differently cross-culturally, right? Yeah. So 
in some cultures, it's not acceptable to be screaming in pain, right? So people have been brought up differently. It's not just a cultural thing. You're supposed to keep your emotions in and quite rigid. And if that's the case, it can be difficult for health professionals that are not from certain backgrounds also to interpret yep. that. And that's a cross-racial thing. Um, people that are brought up in different parts of the world will act differently when they're in pain. And, you know, we need better education around those things. Basically, everything you described, like, I definitely feel like whenever I have to go to a GP, or I, I try not to look bummy. I try to, like, you know, <laughs> present in the best way possible. When they talk to me on the phone, I'm like, you know, I, I, I do feel like I have to put on this sort of performance to be taken more seriously as a patient. And that's, like, basically everything you described. Like, you go into these medical institutions and you kind of just feel like, from the moment I get here, I feel like they're finding excuses for me to be lying or for me to not be telling the truth. And it's really interesting as well. I think, like, when you think a lot about like the history of the NHS and like black nurses and like how they're still being treated and how they have been treated and just like this long sort of like issue between like black communities and our health system and our health services from how we operate within it to how we're treated by it like there's so much kind of history there and context there that then falls onto like the children of people who've moved to this country and then we start to notice it and then we start to have these kind of internalized issues as well where we feel like we're going to go into a room and not be believed or I feel like I have to know all of my facts or I have to like be extremely clear about what I want because I think it's very easy to be dissuaded from asking for something you know that you need because you feel like because there's like an imbalance of like knowledge here yeah even though I feel quite certain that I need this thing or I want this thing I'm afraid to really petition for myself like and I think a lot of people probably struggle in those positions as well because then you feel like oh I actually don't know what I'm talking about so I'm going to believe this like white medical professional over my own sort of like body and knowing what I think is going on here and so I think it's like yeah it's it's really tough and I think you you almost just kind of conform to it and you just let it happen and you're like okay cool I know exactly what I have to do to be treated in x way and I'm going to perform that as opposed to feeling like I want to dismantle it because it feels like it's more than me as an individual it's like the whole institution. The Blobcast visited Harlow College in Essex to speak to their students about their experiences with period pain. Here's what they had to say. I've always struggled with pain with mine to the point where like I pass out every month and it's happened when speaking to like older people in my family it's hereditary I think like the pain and the passing out but um, in secondary school they didn't really cater to that very much it was very much sort of not an excuse when I would come in and I'd feel so ill to the point of either passing out or like gagging in pain and um, they wouldn't be interested <laughs> unless I was physically ill they wouldn't send me home on the whole my periods are pretty um, I mean I usually get my period for like seven days sometimes eight if I'm very unlucky it used to be really hard as well because I used to share a room with my brother but I would always have to like try and get pads out without him seeing and like going to the bathroom and stuff so it was really really hard because his chair that he sit in would be like right by my like pad drawer so I would like go over and just like wait for him to like look away and just like get it and then walk out but um it was really rough but thankfully now I don't have to deal with that. Mine are quite light they're not too bad they're basically every month at the end of each month and they're yeah not too much pain not much at all. When I started my first period it was kind of okay like it was just like what they normally teach you like five days kind of okay you know light to 
middle flow, that was fine. And then from there, it kind of just progressively got worse every month. The pain kept coming on. And by the time I was around 12, it was like, I just couldn't function normally. And I was put on medication for it, which actually made it worse. So I would take two tablets a day. This was about six, seven, eight month period of time. And there was only a few people in the school who knew about it because I was told to kind of just keep quiet and get over it. But I think it is so painful for me. It's like, it goes just all over my body. It starts in my lower abdomen and then it goes down my legs. It goes upwards, it goes to my boobs. It goes like over my shoulders and I find myself tense and it almost, I get headaches along with it, obviously, because I'm trying to, like, don't focus on the pain, don't focus on the pain. And then I'm just kind of stood there in my head, almost, like, blank, completely, just, I need to get through this pain and I'll be fine. And that's every month. And mine last, I would say, 10 to 12 days. It's rough <laughs> it's just a rough time you know those weird adverts so where you've got like uh, women promoting tampax and they're like rollerblading down the street yes yeah. <laughs> rollerblading the pool you can do yeah. anything All with this product like, one yeah where she's I'm like saying, i play tennis and i'm like i can't me off because i'm a beluga whale on the floor <laughs> yes exactly i can do it like, with morphine but <laughs> yeah, exactly give me morphine i'll be fine anything. Yeah. Like, like, i can't it's just like <laughs> i'm serena williams i use tampax to play like tennis i'm like cool good for you <laughs> but it's like good for you but like I'm sat here I'm like you, in my sleeping bag like I can't move am I gonna have to tell my friend that I can't go out tomorrow because I'm a caterpillar probably <laughs> and just talking about pain a lot but the converse to that is pleasure right and yeah. for me reproductive health is just as much about the pleasure part and the positive part as you know the being unwell and the illness part. Yeah. The problem is, is that whenever you try to introduce pleasure as part of the reproductive health conversation, it just people to... on the other side of the spectrum are literally like, why are you talking to young people about, about pleasure <laughs> and feeling good about themselves? You're corrupting young <laughs> minds. Even though there's really rich data that shows, you know, uh, self-pleasure starts really young actually like yeah. from you know eight onwards and um, some data was presented at a conference you know people start having awareness about their body and that like this feels good if I touch it and but people don't want you to have those no. conversations with young people because they think you're corrupting them yeah. so it's a massive challenge because they're happy for you to talk about the pain and the disorder part but they don't want you to talk about any of the good things <laughs> and then it leads to a really skewed perception as well with healthcare like what can I talk to a doctor about I can only go and speak to them about you know when something's dysfunctional and yep. I can't speak to them about how I achieve pleasure because mm. you know that's not for them and so they you know go on TikTok or mm. watch porn or something to get information because they don't have anywhere else to go because they don't have anywhere else to go for sure okay I want to talk to you about kind of pain management but I also don't want to just have the conversation around pain management because I feel like that's doing the thing that we've said we should not do and only talk about it when things are really bad mm. so like obviously what I try and do is open up this conversation around like period well-being right like 
menstrual care, like this idea that you should and can take care of yourself, like understanding your cycle, knowing when your bleeding days are coming, knowing when some of that discomfort might arise, like what can you do? Be that like, I don't even know, sit down and just like have a cup of tea or like take a bath or like be like, I'm just feeling a bit crap. I'm just going to go to bed and watch a movie, right? Like the idea that sometimes we don't really and we're never encouraged realistically unless someone's trying to sell us something to like slow down and just take that well-being thing away from the anything else that's a product based right yeah I definitely I'm like really big on like tracking my periods and yep. stuff like that I mean obviously I know all of these apps sell our data but I've actually just like everywhere has my data at this point like do you, if the government want me they know where to find me it's fine <laughs> so like I yeah I'm like really big on like period tracking and like I can be quite inconsistent with it but I do try for the most part to be like I'm feeling this way because of this thing and aligning those things obviously like I use like all of the CBD products and stuff like that I think like when it comes to like being on my period, like I don't, I mean, obviously I'm speaking from a, like I guess a privileged position because the pain is not that bad, but I do try to like prioritize some form of exercise because I feel like sometimes- the spinning. Yeah, spin, <laughs> like, because if I sit in it, I think I've, I'm like consumed by it more. Okay. So it's like, what small things can I do to like kind of keep, keep me going and keep me on track? Like food is also a big thing as well. Like obviously I don't eat dairy anyway, but even if I have a bit of it whilst I'm on my period, it intensifies like the pain I'm already having. So I'm like very conscious about what I'm eating, how much water I'm drinking um and in general like giving myself grace like if I'm not feeling it I'm not feeling it as well and like for me I have ADHD and like one thing about ADHD is like when you're on your period that ADHD medication is not going to work it might as well be tic tacs so I feel oh, like really? when I'm on my period yeah like my brain is at its most like no do you know what I mean so I have to I really do have to give myself grace and that's probably one of the best things I do in terms of like well-being because I just know that it doesn't matter. It's a wrap for me at that time when it comes to thinking critically or like doing things that require bearing power. Yeah, I love that thing you say, like giving yourself grace. And that's always something I try and tell to young people is like, this is like happening to you, like all the time. Like it's okay to be like, this just doesn't feel that great. I'm just not having the best day, right? Like it's all right just to feel a little bit unmotivated and a bit like, I don't want to use the word slobbery because that just sounds really like <laughs> classed and gross. But like, if you just want to lay on the couch and do nothing, like that's okay. Whereas sometimes it's like, again, the idea is that if you also want to get out and do a bit of sport like do your spin class do tennis do whatever you want to play just run around like that can also be a thing too whereas I feel like sometimes we're like consistently trying to give them permission for certain things mm. as opposed to just like what feels good for you is okay that can be part of your sort of management and well-being for your body then sort of on the flip side that being that there are some people who unfortunately have to rely on medications to get through their period what does that look like What's the reality of that? Yep. So um, definitely also think that doing the more lifestyle things is really important. So we know there's some evidence that exercise and people that exercise more, menstrual pain can be a bit better. Diet, um, there's a lot of overlap between irritable bowel syndrome and menstrual pain, particularly endometriosis. About 50% of people have both. So actually altering diet, like Shantae mentioned, eating less dairy might actually be a component of that for some people and actually taking medication type that we call antispasmodic so stop your bowels like cramping Cramping. as much may really help some people um, so that you can get over the counter in addition to other pain medication really may well help so the kind of pain medications that people often start off with are class medication called non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs so that's your ibuprofen 
So this is like over-the-counter stuff? Over-the-counter, yeah. ibuprofen, naproxene. So you can usually get those over-the-counter. Obviously, not every type of medication class is going to work for everybody. And those are the ones that have been shown to you know, have the most medical evidence. Some people just use paracetamol and it does work for them. There's also codeine, cocodamol, but that can constipate people, so make the bowel symptoms a bit worse. So we're just in a vicious cycle, yeah. Yeah, so that can make a bit of a vicious cycle for some people, can also make a few people feel drowsy. After that, there's, you know, hormonal medication. So Um, then this is prescription stuff um, now? Yes, so... Actually, now we've got the progestogen-only pill, which is over-the-counter. Okay, um, so I didn't you can know get that. the progestogen-only pill over-the-counter. The L one. Uh, no, that's the emergency contraceptive uh, pill. Um, yeah, L one just launched one called. It's called Hannah. So yes, it's um, yeah. the same pharmaceutical company. I think makes another progestogen-only pill, and one of them is called Hannah. Yeah. Okay. So they all um, kind of have digestion and forms of progestion in them which can also be used as a contraceptive but we know those types of hormonal medications can also reduce people's menstrual pain because some people on them won't have any period so right. they might just get occasional cyclical pains but obviously with all hormonal medication people might also get other side effects with that the common one that people start off with is the combined oral contraceptive pill and we know that you know, some people don't get on well with combined oral contraceptive medication. Although I will just caveat that by saying that a lot of people don't realise there's, you know, over 30 different preparations mm. of the combined pill. So you're started off on one in the middle yep. with estrogen progestion of, you know, kind of a middle amount of both. But if you're having certain side effects, you can move on to different types. So it's normal to sort of be able to say, like, you start with this, but then that might not work for you to go back, right? As opposed to just have to, like, get through it and suffer through all the stuff that goes there. You can still. If you have more bloating or you have more acne or something like that, you can be moved to a different type of pill, which has kind of less or more estrogen or a different type of, you know, progestion to get the balance right for you. So you might respond better to a different one. Often people take that without that, you know, that infamous, I'm not sure if you've know about that the pill free week that mm. we were told that we needed initially because yeah this is this in emma in this period book yeah. there's a whole chapter about that which well, yeah. a chapter a couple pages that really talks about the fact that that was just saying they made up yeah so we don't need the pill free interval uh, yeah we it was put in there you know partly to appease the catholic yeah church. that's what it says to appease the pope um, i was like and wow if you have you know period pains then having a pill free week where you have a bleed and pain Mm-mm. is just nonsensical yeah. because your pain just comes back you're also more likely to forget to start your pill packet and if you're sexually active potentially you get pregnant so you don't need to have that pill free week and people can take it continuously less likely to get the breakthrough pain Mm. and any other symptoms as well from that withdrawal bleed that's something else you can try and then there's you know other longer acting methods of contraception um, which release progestion so People may have heard of the marina coil, um, mm. it's commonly known, releases progestion. There's now a lower dose version called the Kylina. The marina's also got another branded version called the Levocert that releases progestion. And those are actually medically prescribed and known to help with menstrual pains, pelvic pains. Really? Um, and because they reduce your period. So at a year, about a quarter of people don't have any bleeding at all. Um, with the progestion releasing and it also so it lightens bleeding reduces the pain and for people with endometriosis that's kind of recommended as a a first line intervention right but you know some people are prone to progesterone side effects so that might not agree with them and not everyone gets the level of relief they need with the progesterone only coil or interuterine system 
these are just various names that they're known by, but those are the kind of main names. But, you know, they can work really well for somebody. And I'm one of those people that I think we need more interventions, we need more information. I think often we need a combination of things mm. to fix it. I think lifestyle changes, trying to have a system which enables us, I believe, in flexible working. <laughs> I believe that, especially with something, where you, if you have regular menstrual periods or you're not on hormones, for example, you know when your period's coming, roughly, for some people, right? So being able to manage your diary around your cycle and work yeah. more when you don't have a period. And I think, you know, given how many people in society have menstrual pain, I think this is something that we have to become more accommodating. For sure. I've heard of, like, period consultants, which are, like, from what I hear, fairly well-paid people that work with, like, high-biz women, people who menstruate, to help them plan their biz calendars around their cycle so that they can have maximum, like, productivity, creativity, X, Y, Z, which was fascinating to me. But, like, yeah... Apparently that's a thing as well. And I think also to add on to that idea of like that flexibility and that accommodatingness, and I think it isn't also just looking at some of those changes, but like how can we adapt these kind of institutions, be that workplace, be that school, to our bodies in the sense of it doesn't need to be a day off, but can you take an extra 10 minutes if you need to just to be like, I just like just got to get this out. Remember, I've got to go and grab some water. I just need to go and sit down somewhere comfy, right? Some of those things are there. If you've leaked, right, is there somewhere you can go that doesn't feel like you're humiliated and embarrassed by it, but you can go, you can go and clean yourself up and get what you need. So like, what are we also doing so that when you do have your period, that if something does go wrong, it gets a bit difficult, that you feel like I'm in a place that can handle that as opposed to I need to go and hide this somewhere or like I just can't show up. I think something else that we know can improve your pain, potentially during menstrual cycles, is self-pleasure. <laughs> um, so there is a little bit of research that shows that um, frequent orgasms, self-pleasure or, um, you know, regular sex where you orgasm can actually improve your menstrual pain to some degree as well. And this is important to mention because we also know there's an orgasm gap, right? <laughs> yeah. So um, that's another episode. <laughs> that's, yeah, and that is, you know, um, an issue within society. But there's real big benefits to having pleasurable sex or self-pleasure, which we're told is really taboo. We know it can improve pelvic pain, but it also releases endorphins. It can make people happier generally, make people more productive, more creative. So that is also another thing that to, to you know, factor in um, if you can do something about it. <laughs> Thank you. Excellent 10 out of 10 advice. Okay, last question is for young people listening, for educators listening, what should you do if you are experiencing period pain at school? Yeah. I think, yeah, I mean, if I was at school and I was experiencing period pain, I think in hindsight, it's easy for me to now say, you know, I would just say this is how I feel and stuff. But I imagine it's particularly difficult if your schools aren't equipped to have that conversations, if period stigma is still a thing, there's a taboo around taking your pad out and stuff like that. I think there has to be people that you feel comfortable speaking with who can act on behalf of you or advocate for you if you need some sort of support. And I don't know if every single school has that individual or if there's always someone that can be like okay cool this is what we're going to do for you or mm -hmm. this is the space that we have for you so I think I guess the, the most important thing I can say is like being vocal being honest and seeing how your peers and also the staff in your network or in your school can actually aid you in all of that because I think if you kind of 
suck it up or you sit in silence or you try to firm it and then you don't kind of deliver to the best that you can, then people start to think, oh, like, what's wrong with this person? Or then people start to feel not necessarily let down by you, but you're not delivering in the way that they know you usually can. And so they become more suspicious than they need to be when actually you're just in a lot of pain. So I honestly think being able to speak about it openly is like one of the most important things. Also, your parents as well, like tell your parents about what you're experiencing. Let them advocate on behalf of you to your teachers, to your form, to whoever it is, because I'm sure they would like, you know, if, if an adult is talking to an adult, I think they're going to take it with a, you know, more more seriousness um, than if it was just yourself. And if you're nervous about that, I think. Yeah, for sure. Which is hard, right? Like you say, it's easier said than done because like we've got our like adult brains on us now as opposed to when you're a kid. And But if you can and you feel like I say that to young kids, if you feel like you can say something, you're also helping mm. your other classmates by like opening up that conversation making teachers understand that this is something that we need to do something about be very aware of so if you feel like you can do it definitely do it so sometimes if you're a student that feels more confident or you like doing things within your school you can potentially embed that within the conversation like what are we doing for students that have reproductive conditions or menstrual pains in terms of making it easier for them to leave the classroom yeah. and the teacher's not asking loads of questions about where you're going. Where you're going, what are you doing, who you're going mm. there with. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, and I think those are things that, you know, schools need to be encouraged to get rid of. So even as a parent, you know, saying how is my child able to leave the classroom freely in case they're leaking um, or do they need a hall pass that takes like 30 minutes mm. to get, right? Which is not feasible for somebody that is either bleeding heavily or has menstrual pain. They just want a break now. As I said, I was still sneaking products <laughs> to the toilet. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, if you're a braver young person... Um, yay for you because it took me a while to yeah, get yeah being a teenager is hard yeah. all the time I was like I never have to be a teenager ever again in my mm. life and I'm so happy about that because it's rough it is you know rough. you're like, going through a is, lot it so. is rough like yeah. yeah there's a lot going on <laughs> for sure <laughs> amazing well thank you both so much for your time today it's been a joy to speak to you have a great day hi my name is Annabelle and I started my period when I was 14 Hi, my name is Shante and I started my period when I was 13. Thank you for listening to The Blobcast, where open conversations are our thing. Now, we want you to do the same in everyday life. Tell people that you're on your period, talk about your bleeding and don't hide your period products. The more you talk, the more shame and stigma can be broken down. And the more that happens, the more we can free the period. We are sponsored by PHS. PHS supplies schools with period products which are free for any and all learners who need them, whenever they need them. No questions asked. If you're a teacher or a student listening to this, you can find downloadable resources on the PHS website. The link is in our episode description. Don't forget to follow us on our social channels. Just search for The Blobcast.